In order to truly become part of the global business environment, your business needs to constantly change and adapt to a variety of new constants. Welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders with Kimberly J. Lewis. We will help you navigate these changes on today's program and help you think beyond the boundaries. The opportunities are limitless if you are prepared. Now, here is your host, Kimberly J. Lewis. Good afternoon and welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host, and my goal is to make you aware of the best leadership practices, leadership trends, and thoughts around leadership. We also talk about business issues that leaders need to be aware of in order to lead their businesses successfully in today's global economy. So if you're a returning listener, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you may be listening from today. And if you're new, let me tell you a little bit about this series. Leadership Beyond Borders is about the impact globalization is having on our organizations and what that impact is doing to the kind of leadership we need to drive long-term success in today's economy. In this series, we've talked about everything from business issues such as artificial intelligence and data protection regulations to leadership issues such as gender balance, generational management, and business values that may impact you or your organization. So please download us on iTunes or Google Play and get in touch with me. You can reach me at leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you have some ideas of what we can have on this series, please let me know. Tell me what you want to hear about it. So if you're in a leadership position or aspire to be in one, regardless if your business is international or local, make sure you join us each week and we will make sure you take away something useful for either your business or yourself. And today, we're going to focus on some business issues that are very are affecting your business very, very much. We live in a digital world today. As business people, our companies, we have to have a professional presence on the web. We are worried about our image. We're worried about how we reach customers. We're worried about the privacy of our customer database. And we also are worried about the numerous media channels that we face and also how do we keep up with the changing technology that we're facing every day. As businesses, we're taking advantage of some of the increasing marketing channels such as mobile, but at the same time, we're seeing what we think are showstoppers such as ad blockers or data privacy regulations. Essentially, a lot of this stuff has really thrown our marketing departments into a tizzy. They think they're facing a nightmare, but are they really? And what are all these changes and why are they happening? Are we just paying for the sins of our past or are we finally getting around to digital, making digital marketing and advertising more ethical and possibly more effective? As consumers, we applaud the new privacy regulations, but as business people, we're in conflict. As the digital media industry reacts to these changes, What's happening? What are the publishers doing? What are the big guys doing? Today, we're going to take a look at some of these questions and more. We're going to talk about some of the concrete issues businesses are facing today when at, with advertising on the web. And we're going to look at how regulation will change the way we need to target on the web. And we're also going to take a brief look on where we are, and what might be coming down the road. And we're going to be doing this with a digital expert and a digital historian. 
Dr. Johnny Ryan is a fellow of the Royal Historic Society and is the head of the ecosystem for PageFair, a digital analytic company. Johnny's current focus is on GDPR, privacy regulation, and media sustainability. He is also a member of the World Economic Forum's expert network on media entertainment and information. He has a background in policy think tanks, academia, and media. His previous roles include being Chief Innovative Officer of the Irish Times and Senior Researcher at the Institute of International and European Affairs. He has spoken at the United Nations, University of Oxford, University of Cambridge, the European Commission, and the Academy of European Law. As a PhD scholar at the University of Cambridge, he studied the spread of terrorist memes on the web. His first book, based on the work that he did at the Institution of International and European Affairs, was the most cited source in the European Commission's impact assessment that decided against pursuing web censorship across the European Union. His second book, A History of the Internet and the Digital Future, is on the reading list at Harvard and Stanford and is currently available on Amazon. His expert commentaries on ad blocking, privacy, and digital have appeared in the Financial Times, Le Monde, Wired, Advertising Age, and many others. And I also had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Ryan last two weeks ago at the Search and Information Association. Uh, conference in London. So, Johnny, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. Thank you, Kimberly. It's nice to join you. Okay. So, um, uh, let's start just a little bit. You know, we have all kinds of listeners out there. Um, uh, uh, maybe a kind of s- a synopsis of, of how advertising on the web, where we are today with that, and maybe how we got here. Well, okay. Um you know, back in the simple days, as you might think of them, uh, a, an advertiser who wanted to reach an audience would pay a website for access to that audience. And that that model, to some extent, still applies today in what's known as direct deals. But very, very often, what actually happens is that when you, Kimberly, visit a website, the website broadcasts your presence Um, maybe not you by name, but you uh, in the form of some identifier, it broadcasts your presence to tens, maybe more than tens, maybe hundreds of parties so that they can make bids, uh, bids for the opportunity to show you an ad. They will know, hopefully, they think, whether or not they want to show you or someone like you an ad. And if they do, they'll make a bid. And the website then, through this online auction, uh, will receive the ad that makes the highest bid and show that to you. So we've ended up in a point where a reasonably large part of the online advertising system that that keeps publishers afloat online involves broadcasting your personal data to tens or hundreds of companies in a manner that is not that much different to um, how Facebook leaked data out to Cambridge Analytica. And mm-hmm. that system is known as real-time bidding or programmatic advertising. And uh, it's becoming a problem. Mm-hmm. 
And, and this, this programmatic advertising and this real-time data, if I think of this as a consumer, so I'm going out, you know, to, to all these people who want to capture me, okay? And um, this, this is what got me as a consumer frustrated. But, of course, as a business, I want to do that. And is this what has happened for the development of ad blockers? Okay, so I'm a, I'm a consumer now, and I can, can, you know, now block that ad. Is, can you talk a little it's bit about? It's part of it. Yeah, that? yeah, yeah. It's part of it. So, at PageFair, we've been we've been releasing uh, reports every year since 2013 on the rise of ad block, and in the early days. People installed ad blockers for a, a set of reasons. One of them was privacy. Uh, the early adopters were very, very concerned that they did not want people to know what they were looking at on the web. And that's what the online advertising system, a, a large part of it, examines. It is what you're reading last and where you So they didn't like that. The other problem was they were also preoccupied, I think, with security. Um, when an ad is served in this way, the ad gets to run code on you. Right? So it's delivered script, and the website that the ad appears on does not know what that script is doing. So some random code is executing on your machine, and the ad block early adopters did not like that either. And the third thing they didn't like was that a lot of these ads were not just snooping on you and exposing you to security making your lap fan spin up because they were so badly coded and they were slowing down the website and in many cases jumping around the screen and animating. So there was a there was a user experience dimension. Now of course there's also a population of people who just want to skip ads, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they view ad blockers the same way we view remote controls for our television sets and that's understandable. But for the early adopters I think it was privacy and the attendant security issues that that gave the ad block problem, as far as publishers would, would see it, that gave the ad block problem legs. And right now we're well north of um, of 615 million people uh, around the world blocking ads. The number would be far higher now. That's what it was a year ago, last time we released our report. And and these these people who are blocking ads now, Johnny. So it's growing, as you said, it's growing. So what are the reasons now? Is it are we just getting sick of seeing these ads, or is it still privacy issues? It's, it's become a convenience. You know, mm-hmm. the early adopters were concerned about security and privacy because these people tended to be uh, more engineering minded. But this is what happens with the early adopters. Early adopters are very often sophisticated, and they introduce to the mass audience something that everyone can get behind. And Adblock has an obvious appeal. You know, people would prefer to read things without having to wait for an ad to load. They'd prefer to read things without any distraction. And Mm -hmm. the motive at the moment, I think, is why not install an Adblock uh, tool and skip the ads? The, The terrible tragedy is, though, <clears throat> that you might install an ad block tool because you're confronted by annoying ads on one website. But when you go back to a different website, you browse on to a website that you love. Because you have an ad block tool active, that website is now not receiving any payment for the mm-hmm. content that they are showing you. And 
we've done a fair bit of research on what happens inside newsrooms, inside journalistic organizations when this happens. It does have an impact on the revenue and it does have an impact on their sustainability. So what has happened is the media owners online, publishers of websites of all types and sizes, have walked themselves into a kind of a cul-de-sac where they permitted the advertising industry to run utterly amok on their properties. They annoyed their users so much that the users switched off ads. One way or another, they switched off ads. And now the worthy publishers find themselves at a disadvantage because they are not able to show an increasingly large part of their audience ads to pay their bills. Um, mm-hmm. for, for us as a company, our, our mission, it's a slightly changing mission, but our mission has been up until now that um, there are publishers who need to show ads. They don't need to show ads that are intrusive, that jump around the screen, that snoop on your data. So what, what our company does is it makes certain ads block-proof. Right? They, they can't mm-hmm. be blocked by the mainstream ad blockers. If someone is still annoyed by them, even though these ads are just sitting respectfully in their corner, they aren't animating, there's no noise, they're, they're just pictures, there's no JavaScript, there's no security implication. If someone still does not like that, well, they have always had the ultimate power to leave the website, and that is a risk the publisher can take. Um, but our solution has been um, make the ads respectful again, bring them back to, to what mm-hmm. they were years before, things got too complicated, and just show them. Mm-hmm. And what we find is that not only do people not leave websites equipped with those ads, but people don't complain about those ads either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> there was a time when it worked, and we're taking it back to that time. Well, I think that would be, I mean, this is a really important innovation in um, technology or because... The innovation. Because, <laughs> because you really, it, it, the continuous increase of ad blockers could really, as you said, uh, kill this web ecosystem, okay, yeah, it, ecosystem. Absolutely. Yeah. It, this, is the, this is the mechanism that sustains the web as we know it. Mm-hmm. It's an imperfect mechanism. In an ideal world, we would not rely on advertising for um, for journalism. We would not rely on advertising for most of our entertainment, if any of it. But in truth, actually, we have for a century relied on advertising for most of the quality stuff, quality content that we receive. So until such a time as micropayments take off or some other form of subscription for general web content, the only thing that currently works our ads, mm-hmm. and we have to find the right balance. What is the least intrusive format that will annoy people the least and will pay the publisher the most? <laughs> mm, and yeah. That's the journey we've been on for quite a few years. Which I think is great because actually, Johnny, if you think about it, of course, we've always had advertisement supporting content. If you go back to legacy newspapers or magazines and um, and so it, it's just a different format. It's digital now and it is quite important to that, to that uh economic system 
And um, I want to come back, Jenny. We're going to take a short break, and I want to come back and talk about this privacy issue a little bit because and how that's affecting all the advertising and everything else that's going on in the web. But we'll mm-hmm. chat. We'll take. We'll talk about that in a couple minutes. We're going to take a break right now. And for our listeners, we are talking to Dr. Johnny Ryan. He's the author. He's an author and the head of the ecosystems for Page Fair, and he's currently focusing on GDPR, privacy regulation, and media sustainability. He's a member of the World Economic Forum Expert Network on Media, Entertainment, and Information, and he has a book that you can get on Amazon called A History of Internet and the Digital Future, and this book is on the Harvard and Stanford reading list. So, Download it from Amazon. It's a great book. I've read it. And you can reach uh, Dr. Ryan on Johnny Ryan, at Johnny Ryan, on Twitter and under www.pagefair.com. And with that, um, we're going to take a short break. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now. To showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event, visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to leadership beyond borders do you have a question or comment about our show please send an email to leadership beyond borders at gmail.com again that's leadership beyond borders at gmail.com now back to this week's program
Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders on Voice America's business channel. I'm your host, Kimberly Lewis. And today we are talking to Dr. Johnny Ryan. He is a fellow of the Royal Historic Society and a member of the World Economic Forum's Expert Network on Media, Entertainment, and Information. And before the break, we talked about a little bit about the development of advertising on the web and ad blocking. And um, we talked about how important advertisement is to the entire monetary and ecosystem on the web and we talked about how ad blocking started Johnny um, what people were concerned on privacy now today we've reached a, a complete different level of concern and privacy in Europe we have the general data protection regulation and for our listeners in layman terms um, this means that organizations and companies need to attain explicit consent from individuals regarding the processing of their data in a clear and understandable way and individuals also have the right to know what's happening with their data. So this GDPR regulation, which is a European regulation, although it it is it must be implemented worldwide if you have any data, you're using any data in Europe, how how is GDPR going to change the state of advertising now on the web, Johnny? Well, I think it's going to change it quite a lot um, and in a good way. Uh the GDPR introduces some new things to European law, but what's surprising is how little it changes. It, it harmonizes a lot of law that already existed in the European Union. The main thing it does is it introduces very, very tough penalties. So, so for all of the companies, in other words, the entire online advertising and media industry that wasn't really complying with the spirit of the existing laws, now they must comply with the letter of this new regulation, and otherwise they will face um, very, very severe sanctions. Now, what that means is the online advertising system has revolved around the notion that you can share and trade personal data, that's a, that's a term in European law, personal data, mm-hmm. um, with any business partner you want without really paying attention to where it ends up. We saw the example of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. Mm-hmm. It's no different with all of the other companies, including every publisher, every website out there. No one knows what's happening with all of the other parties, the third parties that are active on, on their, their web page. So what happens now from the 25th of May, is that the advertisers, the brands, who pay for the web to be as it is, are all now exposed by the media that they advertise on. The media that they advertise on on the web are nearly all leaking data like a sieve. (laughs) <laughs> they're leaking it in these um, these these requests for, for bids uh, for their audience that I described before the break. But they're even leaking it to third parties who, who are running, for example, share buttons on the page. It's not just Facebook. It's other companies like Add This and so on. Mm-hmm. So the regulator or the European lawmaker is finally stepping up and saying, look, In the European Charter of Fundamental Rights, which is the key legal document in in this jurisdiction, the citizen or the individual, any individual inside the European economic area has a right to protection of their personal data and to the privacy of their personal and family lives. And that means any industry that is currently not respecting those things is in for a bit of a shock. Now, this isn't actually just a European phenomenon. 
the first thing to, to, to acknowledge is that many of the ideas that are in the GDPR are not just old European law ideas, but they're also ideas that the USFT itself trying to get Congress and the Senate interested since 2009. The second thing is that all are will apply the 5th of May this year, 2018. China has a new standard entering force on the 1st of May. And that will bring a GDPR-like standard to the civilian internet. This is nothing about state surveillance, just about mm-hmm. how e-commerce players and social networks work. So, so if anyone's counting, that's one and a half billion people in China plus half a billion people in the EU. And now add in South Korea, possibly, I believe, Argentina and Brazil too. Maybe California moves ahead with its GDPR light um, uh, law, and there's a few other jurisdictions. Now, that means you're seeing a global trend towards improved data protection standards that industry will have to adapt to. And at the same time, you're seeing every single Apple user on Safari, on mobile and desktop, everywhere in the world, is essentially, by and large, not being tracked by third parties anymore. So that, together with some changes by other browsers, Firefox, Brave, etc., it means there's a global trend away from the use of personal data for ad, for ad targeting and toward what you might call non-personal data. So mm-hmm. the short answer after all of that to your question is <laughs> we are probably moving to a point where advertisers... Are, are no longer sharing personal data, data that could single someone out from a crowd, for example. Any personal data there are no longer being shared with hundreds of other partners on, you know, on a kind of a speculative whim that, that this may add up to a, to a better ad buy. Brands and publishers can still have and use personal data, but they can no longer share it with innumerable partners for no particular reason. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the recent uh, statements from Google and Facebook, notwithstanding. Mm-hmm. Well, Google just um, when you say when you stay on that, Google just announced was it last week that that it had decided to use non personal data and ad targeting to comply with mm-hmm. the GDPR. Um, and uh, but but then there was all kinds of little little twists with that, also mm-hmm. on kind of passing the buck to the publishers who have to obtain visitors' consent. Do, do you have any comments on on the sure, statements yeah. that they've come out yeah. with? Yeah. 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 Two things, and, and I, I've published something on this actually on pagefor.com slash blog. The first thing is, yes, Google uh, are saying they will launch non-personalized ads. Um, they haven't actually said that they will move to non-personal data. So mm-hmm. if Google um, plays the, the GDPR right, it seems to me, they will be able to use non-personal data that are the result of search queries that they receive and they'll be able to provide a really, really good advertising platform for brands. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be that that's not what they're thinking and that they're just going to provide some sort of uh, what they call non-personalized ad, even though it may use some things like unique IDs and so forth. In any case, they have been very, very broad in what they've said. There's no specifics, which is remarkable, considering mm-hmm. we're so close today, one month away from the new regulation applying. The other thing they've done is they've said, if a website that uses Google services, such as Google Ads, if a website wants to use personal database services, the website must get consent. 
from their visitor. Mm -hmm. um, but they also said the website must also permit Google to use those data of the website's audience wherever Google wants around the web for whatever purposes it appears to want them for. So <laughs> if... <laughs> If I were still working uh, for a newspaper, which I used to do some years ago, I would not agree to that because mm -hmm. this would be me permitting Google to take my audience, which is my most precious business asset, the only important thing really, mm -hmm. and, and to use its knowledge of my audience elsewhere and to sell that audience mm -hmm. off my site. Now, mm -hmm. I, I, actually, I should add to that. The main trade body in the area, um, Digital Content Next, which represents the premium publisher brands, primarily in the US, but also partly in Europe. Digital Content Next has already called Google's approach a non-starter. That's a mm -hmm. quote from the CEO. Um, so I think so far, uh, Google and Facebook have not covered themselves in glory uh, as far as the GDPR goes, mm -hmm. which is a pity. And which which also is a little bit scary because it's only it's it's not it's a one month away actually well it's uh, one thing. <laughs> it's it's scary for their shareholders yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of, of which I am not one but I I, I, I fear for my pension scheme I God knows yeah. if they've invested in the duopoly yeah. Um, yeah. look the this is a regulation it's not a directive what that means is it's a type of European law that will be almost entirely transposed directly into national legislation. Mm -hmm. It will not be reviewed for several years. It is what it is. Um, it has been made very, very clear by the roundtable of European regulators what is expected. If anyone was in any doubt whether that roundtable, known as the Article 29 Working Party, wh whether they were correct or not, every time the European Court of Justice has to... Um, deliberate on these issues, they refer to the, to the Article 29 Working Party, or mm -hmm. almost every time. Mm -hmm. um, in a recent case, I think in the uh, Brussels Court of First Instance, um, which found against Facebook, and even though Belgium is a very small market, levied a, a penalty of a quarter of a million euro for every day that Facebook did not comply, and Facebook found themselves running up against the opinions of the Article 29 Working Party, which they had ignored for several years, mm -hmm. and being told, no, you should do what you're told by the round table of regulators. So what both of these two very large companies are doing at the moment is a form of regulatory brinksmanship, which I can see no positive outcome to mm -hmm. for them, because mm -hmm. they have already been told where this is going to end up. And as Microsoft would be able to tell them, when you run up against the European institutions, you're, you're running up against a continent. It's mm -hmm. <laughs> not a good thing <laughs> yeah. to do. Yeah. And, and Johnny, on this whole thing, if, uh, this is going to trickle down also into the effective advertising on the web, um, you know, and, and into the ecosystem. If they're not getting this right the first time, um, it's going to affect the brands that want to be out there. And it, it's kind of a cascade system or not. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um the brands are going to need to find places where they can spend their online advertising budgets safely. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you are the head of compliance or head of legal for a large brand, you simply cannot expose yourself to the kind of penalties that are in this regulation or to the kind of negative blowback um, 
you know, in as far as public exposure goes, um, you may not have the same appetite as Facebook for that kind of negative publicity. Yeah. Right. And and the question for brands is, where can you buy inventory? In other words, eyeballs. That's what mm-hmm. it's called in the market. Yeah. Your eyeball is called inventory. Um, where can you buy inventory that is safe? And mm-hmm. the only place, the only way you can do that is to make sure you are buying inventory that does not involve personal data. Personal data being misused or or being being shared with unknown numbers of parties. Mm-hmm. Now, in the case of programmatic advertising, which is the, the area that, that our business, PageFair, works in, we concluded a year and a half to two years ago, the only way that we could continue to help publishers to show ads that would work under the GDPR was to make sure that those ads were targeted in a sophisticated way, yes, but a way that used no personal data. Mm-hmm. As soon as you're dealing with no personal data, then you do not have to worry about all of the obligations of the GDPR because you're operating at a, at a higher standard. You are mm-hmm. exposing the, the data subject to no risk. You're mm-hmm. entirely in tune with the European Charter rather than you know playing regulatory brinksmanship and exposing everyone involved to court actions and penalties from regulators. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about Johnny, when we talk about personal data, um, just a little bit for for you know we're we're ta- talking about the big brands and we're talking about the big players here, but but just for our listeners, um, this is pretty much ev- everybody. Um, I mean, if you have a, a travel agency in San Francisco and you have a database of customers from Europe who go to the wine country every year, mm-hmm. and you have their personal data, that has to be. Um, you have to get permission from those people on this in the next month. Well, you, you need a legal basis, of, of which there are several. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> you may or may not need to get their permission in an explicit way. It depends on the relationship with the customer mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. use of, of the, the... There's a few things to think about. The first is, what does this phrase personal data mean? Mm-hmm. It's defined in Article 4 of the GDPR. It's a, it's a paragraph worth reading. Because once you grasp what personal data mean, how broad they are, you start to understand the impact of this regulation. Personal data are any data that could directly or indirectly identify a person. So, Kimberly, if you and I were standing, just the two of us in a and someone handed you the piece of paper and it said a woman, uh, that would be a per- piece of personal data because I'm not a woman. It could have identified you. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a, it's a ridiculous example, but what I'm suggesting is that context matters mm-hmm. in determining whether data are personal or not. Mm-hmm. So all sorts of things that appear not to relate to someone can be identified as mm-hmm. um, important. Yeah. Okay, good. So, um, Johnny, we're going to take another break. And uh, this has been a, a really interesting and, and a great discussion. And um, I'd just like to say to our listeners that we are speaking with Dr. Johnny Ryan. He is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, a member of the World Economics Forum, expert on media, entertainment, and information. And he has a book called The History of Internet and the Digital Future, which is available on Amazon and is also on the reading list at Stanford and Harvard. And I would 
definitely recommend reading that because after the break, Johnny, I want to talk a little bit about your book because I read your book on the weekend. So um, I would like to, I I downloaded (laughs) it and uh, actually I always read my books on the Stairmaster. So so, so I'd like to have a little chat about the book and then talk maybe a kind of about what you think the future is going to look like, um, the digital future and, and a little bit about the history you talk about the net in your book. So for our listeners, I'm Kimberly Lewis, and you are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders on Voice America Business Channel. I am your host and the head of the Women's Leadership Academy 2020, providing leadership training to women in all kinds of industries. Please contact me at leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. And with that, we'll be right back to talk to Dr. Ryan again. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now. To showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event, visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to leadership beyond borders do you have a question or comment about our show please send an email to leadership beyond borders at gmail.com again that's leadership beyond borders at gmail.com now back to this week's program Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders on Voice America's business channel. This is one of the best series for learning and listening about global issues and business issues. And today we are talking with Dr. Johnny Ryan. He is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, a member of the World Economic Forum, and an expert on media, entertainment, and information. So, Johnny, we've been talking about um, the state of advertising of, of the net now and then also the new... Uh, general data protection regulations in Europe and how that's going to affect it. 
Um, but I want, I want to take a step backwards for a minute because I want to talk about your book, The History of the Internet and Digital Future, because I, I read the book and I was amazed. I, I didn't know that, I mean, the history of the Internet is, had such a, a, a military roots. Of course, when you think about it, it might be logical, but just what brought you to write this book and, and write about the history of the net? Wow. Well, thinking back, um, uh, I remember that I was a little bit technical before I wrote that book, but I'm not an engineer by training. And I was aware, um, this is a decade ago, I was aware that the there was a digital trend, there was a digital shift happening, and that it was going to be important to understand where that shift was going. Uh, you know, as I tried to figure out what should I do as my next mm-hmm. step. And so I took some time to explore the roots of that trend and to try and make these technologies and the shifts that they have created as simple for myself as possible. So that book, the process of writing it, was also the process of me writing myself a dummy's guide to digital. It meant going back to these ideas when they were at their most simple in the 60s mm-hmm. and 50s and reading the first documents, not the most recent ones, which are incomprehensible, but the very, very early ones when the ideas were at their purest. And then to, to follow decade by decade the, the shifts in business, the shifts in culture, and the shifts in politics that, that these technologies created. And it was a wonderful journey, intellectual journey, to be able to embark upon. And it, it gave me a sense of where we would go next. Uh, I have to admit that we ended up going in a very different direction to what I predicted at the end of the book. Um, and it might be that we're in an oddly anomalous period right now. But the the mental picture that the book gave me was that um, I and you, our, our broad generation, are, in a sense, children of an industrial world. And it's a world where steam and rail and telegraph made things travel much faster than they had before, you know, more than 100 years ago. There was this moment 100 years ago and in the last century where things sped up, but things also centralized and you had poles of power and poles of authority and you see this in the last few centuries in the the forming of imperial trade patterns and so on and that the the shock to me was that in the dna of the internet protocols the the technologies that underlie you know what we think of as the web and the internet is a a decentralizing thing not always manifesting strongly, but 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 often doing so. Where instead of having poles of power and authority, you have this mild decentralization. And um, the the perfect example of that for me was at the time writing that book was the fundraising for the Obama campaign. But an equally good example, um, um, without bringing politics into it, is the the contortion of American politics since then, which has been very often a little bit top-down and a little bit bottom-up, no longer just top-down. And and in these, as you examine these shifts, and you, you mentioned the, this um, uh, uh, chapter on, on the Obama campaign, but over the whole, the whole history, did, was there one thing that stood out to you that had probably the biggest impact on shifts in, in 
when you were going through the entire history. Shifts One in thing. interesting. If, if, yeah. Yeah, that 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 that's quite a question to ask someone. <laughs> this <laughs> this stuff for a few. Write it down. Uh, probably, uh, I, have t- I have two examples. Um, so there was a war of protocols. Or a war of protocols where the telecoms industry in the 80s is starting to adapt to this digital thing. They've woken up to it and they want to own a bit of it. And so the, the old telephone companies come up with this highly regimented, very controlled system. And in the end, they find themselves unable to compete with this much more anarchic, less controlled, low quality, but cheaper system, the TCP IP network. So that, that's one example, but it's, it's, mm-hmm. it might have been fascinating for me to read, but it doesn't make a good story. A similar example <laughs> involves a much more colorful character than any protocol, a guy called Jesse Ventura. Do you know who I'm talking about, Kimberly? Yes, yes. Yes, Jesse, uh, Jesse, Jesse yeah. the body Ventura, right? Yeah, so this is the yes, guy yes. who, I'm not sure if ever he was a porn star. He may have been, but he was yeah. certainly uh, a bodybuilder who became a Navy SEAL or, or the precursor to the SEALs. And then yeah. he became a WWF star, and then he became uh, a, a, an actor who carried around big guns very often. And somehow he became governor of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Jesse the body becomes Jesse the governing body. And what was remarkable about that campaign was this guy, <laughs> you might have thought he was the most unelectable person in history. He had no money. He had a campaign staff yep. of essentially... And I think he was running against an incumbent. And yet, back I think in 94 or 95, what he had going for him was a fantastic email list and a whole lot of young volunteers who almost like a cloud around him would make things work for him. And Jesse shocked the political establishment by becoming elected as governor. And that moment, it's forgotten now, but it was the precursor to Howard Dean and his almost upset in the Democratic primaries um, years ago and the precursor to Obama and the precursor to Trump. And you can see it all uh, in that in that Jesse Ventura moment, and it it showed how it is now far less easy to have top down control or predictability in things. Um, when you know when actually the internet, in many senses, it, it it does help mainstream some things, but you can never fully rule out craziness. That's what the internet has brought. It has brought the it has brought a new fecundity, you know, a new virality to yep. craziness. You never know which thing is going to take off, but something will, and it'll wreck your plans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we, uh, that's the, that's a great story. I love that Jesse story. <laughs> so, uh, and um, you know, when you think about that Jesse story, you think about what you just said uh, that there's craziness out there, and there's a lot of impact. You you talk also uh, in in your book about um, how. Uh, proximity is no longer an issue because the net has changed that and and some of the social impacts that it's had. Um, could you talk a little bit about that and how, you know, yeah. what you've seen yeah. as the greatest social impacts? Yeah, well, when I was doing my PhD, what I was looking at was militant Islamist radicalization, that, that you could have discussions online that might bring someone who was um, sympathetic to to a violent cause to maybe perhaps take action. That was the question I was trying to examine. And um, 
actually the best analogy I found was um, in a totally different community of interest in the in the 80s and 90s as the early online communities. This is back before people on PCs were, were, were connecting a lot. Um, in the early online communities, you had young people who were grappling with their sexuality. Many of them would eventually you know, decide that they were homosexual. But instead of making a pilgrimage to a famous gay center like San Francisco, they could dip their toe into the waters of this community in online chat forums, online discussion groups, and they could learn, you know, was this for them? Were they like these other people? Um, uh, they, they could socialize themselves or not into that system. And I, I found that that model of this underground in adverted commas, kind of per- protective, closed off community for young, um, curious uh, people, curious about their sexuality. I, I found that that was quite similar to the model of, uh, of, of violent communities of interest or potentially violent communities of interest. And it's no surprise that it should be so because although both communities are so different, they're alike in the respect that you want your your connection to the people in this community to be very intimate and you want it to be totally separate to your connection to the people around you. Now, this idea that you can be in a kind of a social silo is is now becoming um, a fact of political life today. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not doing great things to political discourse in some countries. Um, it, it manifests in different ways in different places. Um, one thing I had not accounted for was that the media would have changed in the 10 years since I wrote that book to become a, a, an even more homogenizing force than it had been before. Because although we're talking about niche communities of interests, that does not account for the Kardashians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the phenomenon of, especially ladies, um, the phenomenon of young females in particular, sculpting, using sculpting makeup and using Instagram and so on, and taking the same photographs with the same lighting and the same makeup style as each other all around the world on the same platform was something I did not see. I mm. thought we would see a splintering of communities and we are seeing that, but we're also seeing at a certain level, um, you know, high or low, but, uh, but at a certain level, there's a kind of a, um, a global homogenization um, and it surprises me, and uh, we will see if that moves into a positive place or not. Mm-hmm. And, and that's and that's what makes it hard today, Johnny, isn't it? Because you know, here we have now. That was hard for you to predict ten years ago, and I don't think any of us thought the media would be what it is today. And today we have now the Generation Z, who is, you know, grown up when you know with two-year-olds. They had a study that said sixty-five percent of two-year-olds either had some kind of game or or handy or something in their hands already. So we have this. <laughs> next generation so just a quick question on that do you think do you think this generation is going to form the digital future or do you think that technology is going to form their digital future is it going to the person or the thing <laughs> i i don't know it's it's too yeah. broad for me to tackle but yeah. let, let me answer the question i'd hoped you'd ask <laughs> which, <laughs> okay. is, which is um what's the play for media in the future yeah. and I think, I think what has happened is that certain types of information have become 
cheap and plentiful, right? Just as happened with cameras, um, when when suddenly we had a certain class of camera, in other words, a not very good one, become free on the first smartphones, everyone thought this would destroy the camera industry. Actually, what it did was it really hurt the middle of the camera industry and the bottom of the camera industry, which was replaced by the built-in camera on your phone. That camera was good enough. But it did great things for the high-end camera industry. People wanted to have a conspicuously better camera, or they, they got tricked into loving taking photographs, and they ended up going out and buying an SLR. So you see that the SLR category, you know, that, that higher end of camera, is doing better than ever before. And yet the, the bottom of the market is doing much worse. It's almost disappeared because it's, it's been replaced by the phone. Now, I think the same thing happens in media. What that means is that there's a certain part of the media market, which is all about clicks, and they get very, very little um, uh, uh, advertising revenue per view, um, but they get an awful lot of views. And that that style of information I mean, it's, it's cheap to produce. It's clickbait stuff, Kardashian stuff. Mm-hmm. It's cheap to produce. It's addictive to consume. But it's not making people a whole lot of money unless they've got massive reach. But at the high end of the market, you can take account of something very important. Well, information of different and plentiful online is trust. Trustworthy insight is at a huge premium. And I think you're going to see that publications like The Economist, The New York Times, those kind of things do ever better in this online market. And lower-end publications are going to have a tougher time. They're going to be cannibalizing each other's audiences because they have nothing unique to give. Yeah. And in a and world I- of so much noise, you, 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 know, you need that trustworthy signal. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a great message to end with, Johnny. And thank you so much. Um, perfect way to end. And for our guests, we have been talking to Dr. Johnny Ryan. He is a fellow of the Royal Historic Society and a member of the World Economic Forum's Expert Network on Media Entertainment and Information. And if you want to get hold of Dr. Ryan, you can go to www.pagefair.com or on Twitter at Johnny, and that's with two N's, Ryan. And um, Johnny, it's been super. Thank you so much, and I hope to see you again soon. And thank you, Kimberly. Thank, and thank you very much for uh, speaking at the Cinda conference two weeks ago. And for our listeners, Cinda also has a local search summit coming up October 14th to 17th in Dubrovnik, Croatia. So please click on the banner on this landing page. You can get more information. And we are also, Cinda is also doing the local search, doing a conference in London at Facebook on June 15th with the Local Search Association of the USA. And I am Kimberly Lewis, your host. You're listening to Leadership Beyond Borders on the Voice America's business channel. And once again, Dr. Ryan, Johnny, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Leadership Beyond Borders. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Kimberly J. Lewis, on the Voice America business channel. Have a great week.